in a sense, I'm in a very privileged position of us having had the discussion that we've had, and you've been able to share all kinds of views, and I've listened to them, and now I get the opportunity to come up and have the last word on the topics that have been discussed. Actually, it reminds me of a, an infamous Bible study that I was part of as mostly an observer, I would hasten to add. But it's many, many years ago, decades ago, but there was this midweek Bible study, and the topic in question was 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are, and it's not yet made manifest what we shall be. Different versions would have sons of God in place of children of God. And a big debate arose in the assembled company with two protagonists. It's children of God. No, it's sons of God. Children of God. Sons of God. And finally the MC called proceedings to a conclusion and said, I think we need to leave it there. Would somebody just close in prayer? At which point one of the two that had been arguing leapt to his feet, closed in prayer, thanking God for the enlightenment. It was children of God. <laughs> so that was quite illegitimate to have the last word under those circumstances. But uh, you've given me the privilege of, in some sense, having the last word. Well, as you see from the, the screen, I want to begin in this five-part presentation by addressing why it is in churches of God that we serve according to a pattern. We would make that as our claim. There are many Christian denominations and some of them are defined by one specialist teaching and they might take their name from one point of teaching, maybe the Baptist church and they are emphasising baptism. Pentecostal church would emphasise Pentecost as they understand it and the things to do with the Holy Spirit that happened there. So they're, they're picking up specific points in New Testament teaching, and they're defining themselves and saying they're really specialising in these things. We don't do that. We take the biblical term Church of God, and we would say that we serve according to a pattern if we were trying to distinguish ourselves from other born-again evangelicals who are conservative Christians. I think it's important that we, we do recognise that that is where we stand, serving according to a pattern. We're not claiming to be a little bit more biblical than any other church group. We are actually claiming that there's a pattern in the Bible and that we are serving according to that pattern. So the only question really to debate about that, whether our stance is a legitimate one or not, is, is there or is there not a pattern in Scripture that we should follow? That we should do church the way that we do it because we are serving according to a pattern that is set out in the word of God. Now, just an introduction to this, because it will flow through what we are saying, but we can go right back to Exodus chapter 25. I don't think I'll take the time to read the verse with you, but you may remember that that's a time when Israel had been brought from the land of Egypt, and they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They've gone through their baptism in the Red Sea experience, and they're standing before Mount Sinai, and God calls Moses up into the mountain, and he says to them in Exodus 25, through Moses, let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. And then he says, 
See that you make it according to the pattern that I'm showing you. And the margin of my Bible helpfully shows that that same wording, see that you make it according to a pattern, occurs six times in all of Scripture. Three in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament. God is saying, see that you make it according to a pattern that I will show you. And he was talking about the people's collective service and worship in the house of God, which would be initially the tabernacle and then the temple, and comes right through into the New Testament. So we believe that we are serving according to a pattern because we believe that God has set a pattern in his word that we should follow and that that has been his practice throughout the whole of scripture. So we're doing something that we see from Genesis to Revelation. This is not something that we've fancifully observed in a tentative way in one part of history only. Now, the issue then becomes... How do we recognise what is part of the pattern and what isn't? I think what helps us in things like that would be to see something having been anticipated in the Old Testament. And then when we come to the book of the Acts, the early history book of churches of God, to see it being consistently or something equivalent being consistently worked out in the book of the Acts. And then finally to have it corroborated in the epistles that follow the book of the Acts. To take an example, take, take baptism. We practice believer's baptism by total immersion in water. Was there any anticipation of that in the Old Testament? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, give us a commentary on what happened when God brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea experience to get to Mount Sinai. It says there that they were baptised unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So that was their baptism experience. Retrospectively described as such in the New Testament, but it was something that happened in the Old in anticipation. Then we come to the book of the Acts, and we see that believers are being baptized. Whenever they turn to the Lord and they receive Christ, they are then baptized in water, and then they go on to serve the Lord in the New Testament churches of God. So baptism is there time and time again. And then we come to the epistles that follow the book of the Acts and we find corroboration of that same topic, baptism. Because we come to Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 and 4, speaking about our baptism, we were buried with Christ and so forth and raised again to walk in newness of life. So baptism, in terms of its symbolism, is explained in the epistles. But we see it practiced in the book of the Acts and we see it anticipated suggestively in the Old Testament. And those features that are Bible-wide would be the things that we look for to reinforce and confirm to us what actually is part of the pattern that we see in Scripture and that we follow in churches of God. So we serve according to a pattern. There are those who would perhaps sneer at that, and it's been called patternism, and usually when somebody uses a word ending in ISM, they're meaning it in a negative sense. Someone who belongs to this patternism body of people. Well, we are people who believe there is a pattern in Scripture and that we should follow and serve according to that pattern. The other thing we wanted just to address in opening is why we in Churches of God do not practice the miraculous sign gifts today. So that 
For example, we need to define what we mean by the sign gifts. There are four usually recognised sign gifts in the New Testament. They would be speaking in tongues. They would be the interpretation of tongues. They would be the gift of healing. That's healing done through human agency. We believe God can heal at any time. God does not change, but he can change the way in which he works things out. And he, we believe, is no longer healing through human agency. And we also don't believe in the continuation of the gift of miracles, such as we read about in the book of Acts, where they would even take a handkerchief from one of the apostles and it would touch someone and they could be healed. So the four sign gifts, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles and healings, are not things that we practice in churches of God today. But we would acknowledge that in the first century, in the biblical New Testament churches of God, such things occurred, such things took place. We've read about it in our discussion time from Acts 2 verses 1 to 36. So what we are therefore saying is they happened initially, but they were not intended to continue and we don't find them in our experience today and we don't expect to find them in our experience today because of our reading of scripture and because of our understanding of the intention why they occurred in the first century. So we are cessationists in that we believe that the sign gifts have ceased. We believe in gifts of the Holy Spirit teaching and preaching and administrating and encouraging and so forth, all things that we do with the help of the Holy Spirit. But we don't hold to the four sign gifts, though they did occur initially in churches of God. We would just put for now a scripture to that, and then we can unpack it a bit more as time goes on. But if I give you Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, remember Hebrews 2, 3 and 4, the writer is saying that we are not to neglect so great a salvation which at the first had been spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by those who heard, God also testifying with them by signs and miracles and wonders, gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Now, you notice the wording of that. It's very precise. God was using those sign gifts at that time to testify with those who were the Lord's spokespersons who were confirming the word that initially he had spoken who were those spokespersons who were authorized to speak for the Lord and to confirm the word that was first preached by the Lord himself and that group of people would principally be the apostles not necessarily confined to them, but certainly the apostolic generation and majoring on the apostles themselves. They were the confirming spokespersons with whom God was testifying by using sign gifts at that particular time. So I think we can be bold in using Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4 to say there was a very real reason in the purposes of God why they did occur in the first century and for the first generation in churches of God. But equally from that verse is a reason why we should not expect these things to be continuing on today. So we are those who serve according to a pattern. And we are those who believe 
that the miraculous sign gifts have ceased today. So I'm going to move on to my second section now, and you'll see it's headed, what was special about Pentecost? What was special about Pentecost? In fact, Pentecost brings together our whole day, of course, doesn't it? Because in the upper room, Jesus was looking forward to Pentecost. He was looking towards Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter. That was fulfilled at Pentecost. And we've been now there this afternoon in Acts chapter 2. So today we're really looking to Pentecost and beyond. We're so indebted to Luke, aren't we? Luke is the only person who tells us about Pentecost in Scripture. At the end of his Gospel and at the beginning of his second volume, the book of the Acts. So we're indebted to Luke for telling us about Pentecost. We are not Pentecostalists. And, you know, one reason why we could maybe somewhat glibly say why we are not Pentecostals would be that those who are Pentecostals make too little of Pentecost. We might be accused of not making enough of Pentecost. And superficially, you might think there's something in that from their point of view. But actually what we would say is... No, we believe they are making too little of Pentecost. Why? Because Pentecost was a unique day in history. It was an ultra special day. It was the day the Holy Spirit came and descended. Now, we don't expect there to be another Pentecost. It's not a recurring day or event. No more so than the incarnation could ever be repeated. That was unique and one-off. When the word became flesh, the incarnation was a singular day in history. Then the death of Christ. He died once for all. The resurrection of Christ. These were all unique elements in the history of salvation. And no less so is the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came. To indwell believers in the Lord Jesus for the first time. And usher in the church age and the day of grace. The day of Pentecost was unique in salvation history. It's the hinge point of salvation history. Because it would usher in the time when Christ would begin to build his church. I'm sure we've seen that in our discussion group. One of the one-off events associated with Pentecost was the beginning of the church the body. Something can only begin once, and the church the body began on the day of Pentecost, as did the local church of God at Jerusalem. So these were singular things that happened on that unique day in history. You know, not only do people make a mistake about Pentecost in the sense that they don't treat it as being historic enough, but perhaps another mistake is they think it's all to do with the Holy Spirit. I would like to suggest to you that it is as much, if not more, to do with Jesus, our Lord Jesus. Because what happened at Pentecost, and we've been in our groups discussing, what did they hear? What did they see? And so we've been thinking about the sound as of a a violent rushing wind and flames of fire distributing among the disciples and sitting upon each one of them, etc., and the the vocal phenomenon of speaking in other known languages at that particular time. But those things that they heard and saw, Peter explains to them 
were the evidence that the Holy Spirit had come. So the, the things that were audible and visual were testimony that the Holy Spirit had come. And the coming of the Holy Spirit itself in turn testified to the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christ, the Messiah that they had crucified, that generation of Jews that were there, they had crucified him, but God had raised him from the dead. And now exalted, Peter said, that the one that they had crucified had now been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he has poured out that which you now see and hear. So what they saw and heard was evidence that the Holy Spirit had come to indwell believers. And his coming was in turn evidence of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, Pentecost, that unique day, that hinge point in history of salvation, was about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. When could the Spirit come? Could he not have come earlier? No. He had to come after Christ was exalted to the right hand of the Father and he sent forth the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit came and he convicted those that were in Peter's audience that day. And you know, I think there's another connection then between the upper room ministry of the Lord and what we're reading in Acts chapter 2 because in John 16, verses 8 through 11, we read about the conviction that the Holy Spirit would bring to people. They would be convicted of sin because they didn't believe in Jesus. They would be convicted of righteousness because he's gone to the Father. They would be convicted of judgment because the prince or the, the ruler of this world has been judged. When did that take place? Primarily, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a continuing phenomenon. It convicts unbelievers today. But the primary application of John 16, 8 to 11, I put it to you, is found in the fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. When having heard Peter preach, they were cut to the core and they said, brothers, what shall we do? Because they knew then, at the end of Peter's preaching, and I believe he preached in the lingua franca, the common language. It was only his solo voice in the common language. The tongues had ceased by then. That was to draw the crowd. The communication of the gospel was by Peter on his own in the usual language that he spoke in. And they were convicted because the spirit through Peter had convicted them that they had failed to believe in the one who had gone to the Father, having judged the ruler of this world. The one that they had thought deserved death because they thought he was a blasphemer and was unrighteous, has now been shown to be not only a good man, not only a righteous man, but the Son of God, and ascended and exalted at the right hand of the Father. And they could know that. Because the Spirit had come and because they could see and hear things that could only be seen and heard. Because the Spirit had come because Jesus had been exalted. And they realized that they had falsely and wrongly judged the Lord because they had bought into Satan's lie. And Satan was judged at the cross by our Lord Jesus and cast out. And so the uh, text we dealt with this morning and the text we're dealing with this afternoon have this common point in the day of Pentecost. Now... It's time I got you to look up some scriptures. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. And I'm coming to my third point. To say somebody should speak in tongues during one of our church meetings, what should overseers do about that in, at, at that time? Right. I mean, if someone 
comes into one of our gatherings when we are gathered in church and we are participating as we understand it's right for us to participate. Uh, but they participate, whether it's a, a thanksgiving, a remembrance, or a, a prayer in a prayer meeting. Normally, if that has happened and we haven't been able to anticipate it and prevent it, we would allow the, the person, hopefully the brother, to continue his prayer and we would say amen and we would deal with it gently offline. If it's someone speaking in tongues, I think there's a case for taking a little bit more proactive action and if it was possible to try to stop that, I think that's what I personally would be more comfortable with. We had a little discussion in our group and I think this maybe is the, the point that's at the nub of this. There are those believers today who would claim to speak in tongues. You've heard them, I'm sure, and I've heard them. I've been in their company when they've done that. Either singing in tongues or speaking in tongues, and I've heard it. And it would be my understanding of what I hear, but it's backed up by people like Jim Packer in his book, which is referenced in the footnotes, Keep in Step with the Spirit. He's actually, um, maybe not personally, but he's been a part of a group that subjected so-called speaking in tongues today to a linguistic analysis. And it was clear to see that what was being said, the uh, conglomeration of syllables that were being pronounced, did not have any structure of any known language. Now, why is that important? Well, in our discussion group, we were looking at Acts 2 and comparing verse 4 with verse 6. Acts 2 verse 4 says that the disciples spoke in tongues. Acts 2 verse 6 said they spoke in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And those languages were known and verifiable by the proselytes from all the different areas that are listed in that portion in Acts chapter 2. So the Spirit miraculously enabled the speakers to speak languages they had not learned, but were bona fide languages that were recognisable by the people from distant parts that were in that audience. Now, that is not what happens today in the cases that I've encountered or that have been subjected to analysis. You get something that is like a, a loud, tuneless singing in the bath or something that's just a, a whole lot of concatenated syllables being strung together and it's not the same gift that was here in the New Testament. Jim Packer concludes by saying he's got an open mind. He, he, he would not come down with a ton of bricks on people who claim to speak in tongues today as to what they are doing. He said if it edifies them so be it. That's his position on it. But he says what I can be dogmatic about is that it is not a restoration of the New Testament speaking in tongues gift. And that's why I think we would want to take a little bit more action if it was possible and gentle to do so and seemly enough to do so because we don't believe that that should be taking place in our services now. Elsie, is it on this point? Yeah, it's just I've heard them describe this thing that you said is not of a known language. Yeah. I've heard them say it's the language of the Holy Spirit. Uh -huh. Yes, and some people would use 1 Corinthians 13, 1, the tongues of angels and so forth some ecstatic utterances. But that is not what was happening in Acts chapter 2 because we can clearly see that by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Verse 4 with verse 6, other known languages. 
and interpreters present on other occasions when people didn't have it. Get if it's a quick one. Yes, a quick one. Um, the Apostle Paul also seems to suggest that speaking in tongues, that the speaker has control. Thanks, good. That's, that's correct. In the time, in the limited time in the first century, first generation, when these things did operate in churches of God, uh, Paul, when he wrote to Corinth, was trying to correct the abuse or overuse of them, and he was certainly saying points like Gid was making, the spirit of the prophets are under the control of the prophets, and therefore you should be able to cease when you're asked to cease. If I can, thanks for the comments, it's good to, to have interaction, but if I can move on now, because I think this is an interesting one that we need to look at, and it is, as I said, about baptism, and it's beginning in Acts chapter 2, and verse 38. The case of baptism I put here. I could have put the strange case of baptism here. You know, we talked about a pattern. And if I asked any of you, I'm sure you'd be able to say, yes, we serve according to a pattern. Because there are seven steps in Acts 2, 41, 42. And we know all about them. They who received the word were baptized. And they were added to them in that day about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. And in the fellowship and in the breaking of the bread and in the prayers. Yeah, we keep the pattern. We know the pattern. What is the baptism in Acts 2 verse 41? They were baptised. What is that baptism? Well, if you read your scripture inductively as you should, and if you follow the flow of the text, the baptism in Acts 2.41 can be nothing other than the baptism in Acts 2.38. Read again Acts 2.38. Is this the baptism in every aspect the same as your baptism? Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When did you receive the forgiveness of your sins? When did you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? It wasn't at your believer's baptism. You in your interview would have given testimony that you already knew your sins were forgiven. And maybe even said that you had been born of the Spirit. You had an interaction with the Holy Spirit before you were baptized in water. So there's a difference here. We need to account for this difference. If we say churches of God are biblical. Somebody might say to you. Well here's a verse in the Bible. You're not practicing that exactly the same way as they did. Are you? So let's look at this. Acts 2.38 we've read. Let's come to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verse 16. You can just note them down rather than reading with me. If they're, they're too quick. This is uh, in Samaria. And Philip has gone down there preaching. We can see that in verse 12, these people who responded to his preaching had been baptized. Verse 12. Then we come to verse 16. For he, and it's referring back to the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 15, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Name of the Lord Jesus, or name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's the one name. So this is baptism Outwardly, the same as we have been baptized. But for these people, similarly as with chapter 2, verse 38, they did not receive the Holy Spirit till after their water baptism. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? Well, chapter 9, we have the case of Saul of Tarsus. Now, it's not made explicit here in chapter 9, but if I just turn and read to you Acts twenty-two sixteen, which is relevant to Acts 9 because it's, uh, Saul's later testimony, Acts 22:16, Ananias said, "Get up 
and be baptised and wash away your sins. So that kind of evokes, again, what was there in Acts 2.38. Now we'll come to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And we note something in verse 24 onward about Apollos. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila explained to him the way of God more accurately. 26. No more details are given there, but I assume that his situation is exactly the same as the situation of those in the next chapter, Acts chapter 19. Paul now comes to Ephesus, Acts 19. He meets some disciples, verse 1. He says to them, verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Oh, into what then were you baptised? Oh, it was into John the Baptist's baptism. Paul says, ah, John the Baptist baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's genuine believer's baptism. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So once again, the delivery of the Holy Spirit, the receipt of the Holy Spirit has been deferred until after water baptism. So that we can string together verses through the book of the Acts of those who receive the assurance of sins forgiven... And the evidence of having received the Holy Spirit, and even the fact that they only received the Holy Spirit after their baptism in water. Now that's different to what we usually mean when we quote the seven steps. But originally, step two would have been the Acts 2.38 baptism. And there are different things associated with it. Now why is that? We've got to be able to explain that. One thing that runs common throughout all those scripture references. We look for patterns. One thing that runs common through all those scripture references is the people concerned were Jews. They were Jews of the generation that had rejected the Messiah. It would seem that to absolutely verify that they were genuine and for them to make a stand and nail their colours to the mast, it was required of them to be baptised in water before... They got the assurance of their sins forgiven and the clear evidence of having received the Holy Spirit. But these were Jews and they were of that generation that had put Christ upon the cross. So I want to suggest to you, we're moving now to our our, our fourth point here, that we can see God's plan for Jews then and we can see God's plan for Gentiles always. Specifically in this matter of believers' baptism by immersion in water. But I do think we need to be careful and we need to distinguish between Jews at that time and the general picture for Gentiles as God now deals in the church age with the whole world. So that we can fully stand by what we do and teach and preach in churches of God because we have an explanation for why it was exceptional In those instances, strung through the book of Acts, when something slightly different happened for a very definite reason. It's good to be able to distinguish between the plan that God had for the Jews then and the plan he has for Gentiles now. But it's necessary because we in the Philippines, when we're preaching, we'll come across a major church group that base their whole doctrine on Acts 2.38. They build from Acts 2.38. And uh, that's the wrong foundation for 
Gentiles today building their understanding of New Testament scripture. So, pattern for Jews then, but the overall pattern that we follow for Gentiles throughout the age now. Now, I need to come to the last point, which is similar. It's touching about things that were one-offs and things that were intended to be age-long and being able to, to spot that difference. The thing that we've instanced at the beginning, which is probably still the most one that you're interested in, would be the miraculous sign gifts. George Brash, a long time ago in his book, The Holy Spirit and the Believer, very helpfully pointed to a pattern in the whole of Scripture, which if you look at the, uh, well, until 6,000 years of human history, there are three tiny periods when God has performed miracles at the hands of humans. You go back to about 1500 BC, and there's a 50-year period of Moses and Joshua when God performed the miraculous at their hands. God is doing the miracles, of course. It's his power. There's no dispute about that at any time. But sometimes he chooses to do them mediately. That is, through people rather than immediately. And so there's that 50-year period of Moses and Joshua. And then they ceased. And there were no miracles of that nature done through human hands for hundreds of years until you come to, again, a 50-year period in the days of Elijah and Elisha. And master and disciple together, 50-year period, and they're performing miracles. God, through them, performing miracles at their hands, the raising of the dead, even. And then it all ceased and goes quiet, again, for century after century, until you come to the time of the Lord Jesus and his apostles. Again, a 50-year or so generational period, and miraculous gifts are again in evidence. And then it goes quiet. Testimony of scripture would be latterly that it goes quiet, but it's also the testimony of religious history that the uh, miraculous manifestations associated with Christianity were a, a one-generation phenomenon, and they did not continue. And that's the plan of God and the wisdom of God through the ages. These have been limited to bursts of miraculous activity at human hands and through human agency. And so we have that to uh, use alongside the Hebrews 2, 3 and 4, which gave a very distinct reason for why God would at that time have employed miraculous gifts through human hands in the early days of the churches of God. I would also want to say, before we close, that when you think about tongues... You know, if you're talking to people who are really into what they believe is the gift of tongues today, there is some phenomenon, perhaps self-generated. It's not the same as what was here in the New Testament. But if you look at what's here in the New Testament, you find a couple of features. One, that the miraculous sign gifts were only in evidence where there was a direct relationship with the work of the apostles. I remember having to settle this issue for myself as a young man, read through the whole of the New Testament with a notebook and pen, wrote down every instance where a miracle was being performed. Probably I was looking from the Acts onwards. Looked at every instance. 
and could see that it wasn't always the apostles. Other people spoke in tongues, not only apostles. But there was always a clear, identifiable connection, strong identification with the ministry of the apostles. So these sign gifts were clearly related to the era and the personal ministries of the apostles. There's another thing. They were always directed to Jews. Certainly when we read the book of the Acts. To hear some people speak about tongues today, you'd think that in the book of the Acts, you must be encountering tongues on every page. You don't get tongues on every page. Tongues are only mentioned three times in the whole 28 chapter volume of the book of the Acts. Acts chapter 2, and that was a one-off unique event. It was Pentecost, the hinge point of salvation history, the coming of the Spirit. Then again in Acts chapter 10, which I'm going to say to you was really 1B. If Acts chapter 2 and the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is 1A, then it's the same thing It's 1B in Acts chapter 10. It's the Gentile Pentecost it's been called. And yes, there was the terminology of the, the pouring of the Spirit there, but it's very much connected in history with the Acts 2 event. But you have the tongues present in Acts chapter 10. You say, well, that's Gentile Pentecost. Where are the Jews then? Well, I believe this, that the tongues at that time were in evidence as a sign to Jews. Yes. Who were the Jews? The Jews were the companions of Peter who were with him as Peter was preaching to these Gentiles. And of course, this was something that could stumble Jews, that Gentiles were being treated on an equal footing. It was so hard for them to grasp that. Peter had struggled with it earlier in Acts chapter 10. And so the fact that they spoke in tongues was a sign to the Jews who had accompanied Peter, the Jewish companions of Peter, and his preaching in Acts chapter 10. So again, connected with apostles, directed to Jews. And then you come to Acts chapter 19. Only got these three places, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. And in Acts 19, it's Jewish disciples of John the Baptist who have not had the full extent of enlightenment as to the purposes and plans of God. And again, tongues are in evidence. So I would say that we expect the miraculous to be very economically distributed uh, throughout history because of what we see in the overall pattern the 50 years three times we see the intention and purpose of God spoken in Hebrews 2, 3 and 4 we can see the almost rarity of the occurrence throughout the whole book of the Acts and we can see that they were at singular occasions that were in a sense non-repeatable Acts 2, Acts 10 as applied to Gentiles same thing applied to Gentiles and then uh, an extension to the Jews who had been disciples of John the Baptist. And that was something that would die out. It was something historical. So these were historic, one-off, unique occasions. Not designed to be an ongoing, continuing phenomenon. So, we do serve according to a pattern. And we do believe that the miraculous sign gifts have ceased. And I hope we have tried to account for the... Things that we read in the book of the Acts that don't cause us a difficulty because we see a plan for Jews and we see the overall plan for Gentiles and we see the historical feature of the book of the Acts 
and we see the ongoing significance of the church age.